of that, I was reminded of the passage in the Gospels where Jesus says, And when they bring you before the magistrates, do not take any thought for what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit will give you in that same hour what you need to say. And You know, our grace is sufficient each day of our lives for whatever we need to face. Isn't that true? You don't ever have to worry or wonder about how you're going to act if you have your faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, I, the other thing that came to me is I, I'm almost a little envious because we have it so cushy and soft here. And uh, it's just easy to get lackadaisical. And yet God is really mighty in crises and situations where His name can be glorified. Praise the Lord for that. Well, if you are in the fifth grade, there is a service downstairs prepared for you, and you're welcome to go to that. I want to invite the rest of you to open your Bibles to the book of Genesis and to bow with me in the Lord's presence, invite Him into our time this morning. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of Jesus. As we open your word, I pray that you would speak to our hearts, even as you are still powerfully converting Philippian jailers, even in modern times. You are the Creator God who is still active, and we can count on you. We thank you and praise you. And I pray this morning that as we open your word that you would indeed speak to us and, Lord, encourage us, delight us, impress us with your glory. May we give praise and honor to you to whom it is fitting and due. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I thought as I uh, was kind of working on this uh, part four, I have to tell you that titles are not my forte. Uh, <laughs> I always have trouble when it comes to titling a message. So I said, the character of God, part one, part two, part three, now part four. And as we come to part four, I just want you to know that I'm stopping because I feel the need to move on to something else. We could continue our study about the character of God in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 for probably a long time. And uh, that uh, kind of uh, put it on my heart to share with you just kind of an aside from the message this morning that I want to encourage you in your reading of the Scriptures to, to um, kind of practice something that will be a rich blessing to you. You know, the Holy Spirit inspired this book. He is the ultimate author. So he wrote it. If you could sit down with the author of a book, he could explain to you every detail of what he included. Why he made this sentence, why this paragraph, why this character. He could explain all the details that you might miss just reading the book. And we have the privilege with the Scripture of sitting down with the author of the book, the Holy Spirit, and inviting Him to teach us. And every day that I think about these chapters and meditate on them, 
I am learning new insights. I'm seeing new things that I've never seen before. And I want to encourage you. You know, you don't have to be a Greek student or a Hebrew student or a seminary graduate. You can just be a follower of Jesus Christ. Open His Word. Sit in the presence of God and invite the Holy Spirit to teach you. And then as you begin to think about and meditate on the passages that are in front of you, what I would like to encourage you to do is ask some questions in the presence of God, of the text. Who? What? When? Where? How? Why? Just ask those questions. You know, when you read the verse, and, and, and ask Him of the Holy Spirit, and you will be amazed at how much insight and richness that it contains. Uh, as, I, as I have begun to dig into these three chapters, even in the character of God, I've just been absolutely amazed at all the things that are really there. And this morning we're going to explore some more of them. Uh, But I'll tell you the truth, I'm confident that there is more yet to be gleaned. And perhaps you can do that on your own as you continue meditating on who is God revealed in these chapters. This morning I want to point out that He is a God of order and precision clothed in beauty. Now, maybe my uh, phrase is not exactly in the right place in the syntax there, because what I want to say is, is that God is a God of order and precision, but His order and His precision is also clothed in beauty. You know, when I was in college, I worked my way through college uh, in, the, in the trades as a, as a carpenter, and uh, we did stick framing of construction. You know, we built everything with stud walls and wood and trusses and rafters and all that kind of stuff. And, and you can build a house, you can, you can make the foundation, you can put in the floor joists, you can deck it, you can frame it, you can put a roof on it, and uh, get all those things, and it is structurally sound at that point. It'll keep you dry, and uh, it'll function, but I don't know how warm it'll keep you, but it'll keep you dry. We call that getting it dried in. But it isn't very beautiful, and uh, it's, it's not very aesthetic, it isn't very pleasing, but it has all the structure necessary to be the house. And God could have kind of constructed the universe with just the bare essentials. He could have just made the framework, and it would have functioned. But He didn't. He, he covered it and clothed it with beauty. He made it look attractive and desirable. And that's the kind of God He is. He is a God of beauty and a God of amazement. And, you know, when you think about uh, how he put the universe together and how things work and how things function, the flowers and the, you take a walk in the woods and you see the trees and the forest and the, the animals and the brooks. And I, I love to take pictures of flowers. They're one of my favorite subjects in photography. And I love to kind of take, take what's called a macro photo where you get in really close and you zoom in and you just kind of sometimes even focus on just a part of the flower. And then uh, you, can, you can print that much bigger than you can see it, much bigger than life. And you can see amazing detail that, that your eye can't even appreciate because you can't see that, that close up. And um, I'm just amazed 
at the incredible beauty that is uh, just to watch the, the softness of transition in color in a tulip petal. To get a good close-up of that and see how that color changes. I have one, I think they call it a peppermint tulip. I have a picture of it that is red and white. And, it, and it's just, it's like striped. And it's just, it's amazing when you look at it. And there's other kinds. And, and the transitions are amazing. And the colors are rich and saturated. And, and, just, and, and I look at that and say, God didn't have to do that. But He did. And when you think about all the things that He put in the garden, and all the things that He created in the earth, and, and all of the uh, things to enjoy eating... Like I said last week, He could have just created us to survive on oatmeal, you know. Uh, we, we might not even have to use the milk or the cooking. We could have just kind of chewed the dry grain. Wouldn't that be exciting? Have you ever tried eating dried oatmeal? Don't eat too much of it. Because <laughs> it will do the same thing in you that it does in the pot. <laughs> so I recommend care there. But can you imagine how that would be? But God didn't do that. He, he created our palates to taste. And then He created all these amazing things to enjoy. He just put it all together so that we would have a feast for our eyes and a feast for our taste and and sensation and and all the capacity that God made that we could enjoy. This tells us something about the character of God, doesn't it? It tells us that He Himself is a God of beauty. That He is a God of amazement. That He is a God of intricacy. And He made us in His own image and gave us eyes to see and ears to hear and sensation and the capacity to detect texture. He made us like Himself to enjoy all the things that He had made. You know, another thought came to me about His precision. Not only is He a God of exquisite beauty but um, some years ago and I think this is when this first occurred to me some years ago I was studying uh, the the physiology of muscles and nerves and I learned that you can put a needle electrode in a muscle and it will actually make noise if you attach it to an amplifier and turn up the loudspeaker on a special machine, you can actually hear the noise of the muscle. And it talks to you. And a muscle, as it contracts, or as the electrode is inserted, will tell you by sound whether it's healthy or not. It'll tell you if it's functioning properly. Or it'll tell you if it's sick, and if it's diseased, you can tell by the sound of it what kind of disease it might have. Isn't that amazing? And I started realizing that that sound expressed on the oscilloscope as a sound wave can be mathematically interpreted. And the frequencies can be analyzed. And you can study that. And then it dawned on me, and I think it was in this season of time that it dawned on me, that everything in the universe, light, color, sound, structure, force, motion, everything that goes on 
can be described mathematically. That it can be analyzed and expressed as a mathematical equation. And I realized how precisely God has made the world. And how neatly it can be described in in purely mathematical terms. And then I was amazed at how I began to see similar function and similar structure and similar equations occurring in all kinds of different areas of life. And I realized that the fingerprint of the master designer is, is on everything that we behold. And so when I look at what God has made, I see that He is a God of amazing order, amazing uh, precision, and at the same time, amazing beauty. All of this we can see in these first three chapters. And then we come to chapter 3. And when we get to chapter 3, and we're going to... You know, we're going to be spending a lot of time here, and chapter 3 is definitely going to occupy our attention. Because chapter 3 really drills down to why we have the problems we have. It really gets down to the, to the bottom line explanation of what's going on with our lives. In chapter 3, we read the story of the fall of man of his sin, and and, and how the whole race got off track. And when we do that, we also find more insight into the character of God. We find that he is a God of holiness, that he is a God of righteousness, that he is a God of justice and judgment and wrath. And we also find that he is a God of mercy and a God of grace and a God of patience, and a God of amazing love. When we get to chapter 3, why don't you just pick up the story with me in verse 8 of Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife had hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of life, or have you eaten of the, from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil <coughs> you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground from which, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. You know... When we consider what these verses contain in the end of this chapter, God had made a promise to them. He said, in the day that you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Satan challenged that. Adam and Eve ate of it. And amazing, they did not drop dead, at least from outward appearances. But some profound change occurred within them. And what that was, was that all of a sudden, they were estranged from God. They had been close to Him. They had been in harmony with Him. They had walked with Him, apparently from the text, every day in the cool of the day. They were in fellowship with God and unashamed. Now, they're hiding. They're estranged. They are running from God. And the Bible indicates, as we delve more deeply into it, that what really happened the moment they rebelled, the moment they sinned, is that the Holy Spirit vacated their bodies, and they died spiritually and encountered separation from God. It was only a matter of time before the effects of that would be seen in their bodies and they would die physically because God said, one day to dust you will return. From dust you were taken and that's where you're headed. And we find that God is a God of His Word, and He is a God of justice, and that you can count on Him. Some people, I guess, prefer not to think of God in these terms, but I'm actually rather grateful that I can count on what God says. It is impossible for Him to lie. He will always speak the truth. And when, whatever He says, whenever He says it, that will be done. And he said to them, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. And in the day they ate of it, they died spiritually. And the process of dying physically began in that instant. Then we also find that God's wrath is present and His judgment is present. Because they have been enjoying this beautiful garden and they've had all of their needs provided. 
But now they're going to be sent out of this perfect environment. And they're going to be sent out into the world, which the Scripture says God has now cursed. What does that mean? Well, until this time, my impression is in the Garden of Eden that um, they could walk along the pathways and pluck the fruit and the vegetables and fresh salad or whatever they wanted and, and just enjoy it. And it just kind of was there for them. But now God says the ground is cursed. You were given dominion. This planet was made for you. And because of your sin, I am cursing the ground. It's not going to behave for you very easily. In fact, you're going to have to till the soil and you're going to try to raise crops. And when you do, you're going to find that it brings up thorns and thistles. How many of you have ever had a garden? What do you grow the most of in your garden? (laughs) Weeds, man. It's amazing. You can do anything you want to do, but if you're not out there every day working that garden, you get as many weeds as you get anything else. It's just the nature of the thing. You say, why is this? Well, it's because the ground is actually cursed. And when you get all the weeds out and you've got these nice, luscious vegetables, what else happens overnight? Ah, the rabbits and the deer and whatever else help themselves. I don't think my wife um, got a single radish or anything like that last year. I mean, it was Farmer McGregor and, and Peter Rabbit all over again. You know, it's constantly fighting that battle. Because... There was a curse as a consequence of sin. And Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden with the realization that they had to toil in the soil in order to survive. And when they came to the end of their days, God said, that very dirt that you look at every day to to coax a crop out of it, you're going to go back to it. You know, we've kind of gotten away from that. We go to the supermarket and we buy our groceries. And uh, we, we don't see the, the slaughter pens where the meat's slaughtered. And we don't maybe see the gardens where the produce is raised. But they looked at the dirt every day and realized that it was their destiny because of their sin. That is an amazing, awakening reality. The wages of sin is death. And God says in His Word, I will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, under any circumstances other than the one way that He has provided, there is no remedy for sin. The soul that sins will die It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, a judgment. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3. But we also see that God is an amazing God of grace and mercy and patience. Because the reality is, is that 
even though they died spiritually the moment they sinned, they did not die physically. They didn't drop dead. They went on living. In fact, Adam and Eve went on living for hundreds of years. And, you know, I've said this before, it's kind of one of my phrases, as long as there's breath, there's hope. As long as people are breathing, there's opportunity. And God sustained them in His grace. He kept them alive. You know, sometimes we wonder to ourselves, why in the world do some people get away with the stuff they get away with? You know, how, how can they live like they live? Someone was telling me about Psalm 37 this morning. It's in Psalm 37 that uh, David says, I have watched the rich man. And he's talking about the rich ungodly man. He says, I have watched the rich man uh, spread forth its limbs, his limbs, and, and flourish like a luxurious tree. He goes on to say, then one day I looked and he was no more. But for a season, it appears that the ungodly prosper. For a season, it appears that the, the gangsters and the criminals get away with murder. For a season, it looks like bad kings and despots and cruel rulers run rampant over human beings for a season. And we wonder, why does God let that happen? And then we see a video like we saw this morning, and we recognize that God loves sinners, of which we all are. God loves sinners. And there is none good. That's a hard thing for us to come to grips with. We like to think there's good people and bad people. There are no good people. There are only bad people and people who act worse than bad. There are no good people. The Scripture says that. Jesus says that to the rich young ruler who comes to him and he says, Why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Human beings are depraved. We are sinners. And goodness and evilness among us is only in relative terms. We look good because the next guy looks worse. But we are all corrupt on the inside. And God loves sinners. When Jonathan Edwards preached that famous sermon that was the spark of the Great Awakening both in England and in the United States, when he preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in Northampton. He was painting a picture, a visualization for his congregation <clears throat> that every human being is like suspended over a pit of a fiery hell held by the single tendril of a thread of a spider's web. And is ready at any second to perish by plunging into that eternal hell that burns forever. And Jonathan Edwards said, it is only the grace of God that holds you out of that pit. And it was at that time that the Holy Spirit 
fell upon that congregation and people began to fall from the benches into the floor in repentance and grief over their sin. And the Holy Spirit fell upon that place and the Great Awakening was born in New England. Because the reason that God waits is because He is a merciful God and a gracious God. And even though He will one day punish sin, He does not want to. The Scripture says He takes no delight in the punishment of the wicked. And that He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Why does He tarry? Why does Jesus Christ wait before coming back? Peter says, because God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. It is His desire that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. We know they won't, but God yearns for that. And so we find, even in the Garden of Eden, the picture of His grace and His mercy and His patience as He sustains their physical life. And then, He Himself comes and provides the remedy. He sheds the first blood on the planet. God does. He slays the animal. He covers them with the skin. He provides the covering for their shame and their sin. And in doing so, He introduces them to the reality that life is in the blood and the soul that sins will die. And it requires a blood sacrifice, a death to atone for sin. It's very clear. When we go over and we find in the next few chapters after this, that Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices to the Lord, and God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but He rejected Cain's. When I was a young person, I used to read that, and I think, what's the deal here? I mean, God doesn't like vegetables. I mean, what's, the, what's the problem? They both brought a sacrifice. And it's obvious that Abel was a shepherd, and Cain was a tiller of the field. And it's like, so they each brought something. No, no, no. God had already explained very clearly to Adam and Eve that in order to atone for sin, vegetables didn't cut it. You had to have blood sacrifice. And what Cain needed to do was go to his brother and trade the the vegetables and the fruits in exchange for an animal, a sheep, a lamb and bring that to the Lord and sacrifice it. And he would not do that. He was proud and arrogant, and he was going to make his own way to God. And as a consequence, God rejected his sacrifice and the pride of his heart. But friends, even there in Genesis, God begins to unfold the solution, the remedy for sin. And he includes in Genesis 3.15 the promise of one who will come This animal that he slew for their covering was merely a foreshadowing of one who would come and crush the head of Satan and become the sacrifice, the perfect Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. It's amazing in these early chapters how clear God makes His grace and His mercy and His patience to shine. And then we discover as we look more deeply that permeating all of the story 
is his love. God's amazing love. God created the world and all that is in it and all the universe and the stars and the moon and the sun for guess who? You and me. He made it for us. Now, ultimately, it is all for His glory. But it is clear in the creation narrative that as we come to the end, and man, Adam and Eve, are the last ones to be made, that everything else has been prepared for them. And then God says, I've given it to you. Have dominion. And then we find that He made us in His own image and provided perfectly. And then we find, again, that in their sin and rebellion, God delays the ultimate judgment. And in His love for them, begins to paint the picture of the way back to fellowship with Him. So that Jesus stood before Nicodemus and explained to him, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Isn't that an amazing story? That God Himself has provided a way back. And we find it all in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You know, if these were the only pages of the Bible that we had, if we didn't have any other scripture, from these three chapters, you could learn that our God is transcendent. He is out there and He is imminent. He is right here. We can learn that He is eternal and that He is infinite. We can learn that He is spiritual, does not have a body, but is nonetheless very real. We can learn that He has all power, all knowledge, and He is present everywhere at the same time. In fact, the Scripture says, our God is not very far from any one of us at any time. And Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the age. We can find that He is a triune God. He is a personal God. He is a relational God. He is a loving God. He is a good God. He is a God of beauty and order and magnificence. He is a God of grace and mercy, but also a God of justice and wrath. He is a holy God, a righteous God, a God who both blesses and curses. He is a God who inflicts punishment for the wicked, but also offers forgiveness and grace for those who turn back to Him. All of these things can be learned in these three chapters if we didn't have another page of Scripture. And I'm sure even much more. I wonder, I know most of you sitting here this morning, and I know where you are spiritually, but I wonder if there's anyone who recognizes that they're still running from God.
anyone who recognizes that they have gone off the path, that God is looking for you, and the only reason you're alive today is because God is patient and He is waiting for you to come home. We're going to share the Lord's table in just a moment. And as we take the the bread and the cup that has been prepared to remind us of the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know for sure that you have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ? Have you accepted the payment? He Himself has offered the sacrifice, just like in Genesis 3. He Himself has offered the perfect Lamb. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And He died on the cross and shed His blood that we might truly be cleansed and forgiven and covered. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Have you received that grace, that gift, this morning. Father, as we prepare to come before this table of our Lord Jesus Christ, I pray in Jesus' name for every one of us here. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, anyone at all, maybe they've been coming to church, maybe they have thought that they were in a place of safety, but they realized this morning that they have not truly put their faith and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. Will you touch their heart? Father, I want to pray for these gentlemen who have been our guests today. Just ask in Jesus' name that you meet the needs of their life. Father, that you would Draw us all to you, how much you love us. It is amazing. It is amazing. There is none who does good, not even one. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside, each to his own way. But you have laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And you have made provision through his shed blood to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be restored, to be brought back into fellowship, to be given life and light and hope in place of death and darkness and despair. And it is all freely offered through Jesus Christ. Thank you, O God, for your love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.